see everybody here this morning, and I uh, do invite you to take your Bibles again and turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17, and uh, I'm going to read for us again just a few verses here that Tim already read, uh, verses 45 to 47, okay, verse 45 to 47, 1 Samuel 17, uh, beginning in verse 45. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. Let's pray, okay? Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and Lord, we pray now that You would be with us by Your Spirit, and we pray, Father, that You would teach us according to Your Word. We thank You, Father, for the life of David and for all that You have to teach us from this text. Be with us now, we pray, and help us and Lord, we pray that we would be changed for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Brooks Trollinger, who's eight years old, he's sitting right here in the second row. Uh, his dad, Chad, and uh, mom, Amanda, are members here. And Chad led us in prayer this morning. Brooks has been asking me for some time, when was I going to preach on David and Goliath? So he's been asking me that question for a while. And uh, like Brooks, I love the story of David and Goliath, and so I've been looking forward to the opportunity to preach this passage. Uh, right now, uh, our church is in a series in the Gospel of Mark, but we're at a good breaking point, and so I decided to go ahead and take this opportunity to do a short series on uh, David. And so this week, we're going to look at David and Goliath here from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And then in the following weeks, we're going to look at a couple of psalms uh, that were written by David. And the series is entitled, Warrior of Faith. Warrior of Faith. David was a man after God's own heart. This is one of the ways that the Scriptures identify David as a man after God's own heart. And in thinking about that, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? We will see that at least partly, it means that David was a man of faith. And so in particular, we will focus on the faith of David in this series. Uh, Tim has already read the account for us, so we read through 1 Samuel 17. It's a pretty long account in terms of the battle between David and Goliath, so we're not going to read it again, but I want us to briefly retell the story, and then we're going to consider four applications, okay? So let's go ahead and jump into the account, and I want to briefly retell the story for us. If you look in there in chapter 17, you'll notice that in verses 1 through 11 the lines of the battle are drawn. So really the scene is set for us in verses 1 through 11. There are two players here. There are the Israelites and the Philistines. And there is a valley that is created by two mountains. Israel is encamped on the top of one mountain. The Philistines are encamped on the top of the other mountain. And below is a valley. And the valley is where the battle or the showdown is going to take place. In verse 4, we are introduced to Goliath. So if you look there in verses 4 through 7, we read these words. Um, 
Verse 4, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. So, Goliath here is identified as a champion. Uh, He is, if if you take the measurements and convert them, he is almost 10 feet tall. He's over 9 feet tall. And the author here gives us an extensive description of his armor. He is quite the warrior. Goliath issues his challenge in verses 8 through 10. And essentially, what he challenges the Israelites to is one-on-one combat, right? Him and one other person. But he offers quite the reward, right? Whoever wins gets all the marbles. If the Israelites win, then the Philistines will be their servants. If the Philistines win, though, the Israelites will be the Philistines' servants. Now, this is the stage. It's set. And you notice there in verse 11, Israel's response. Look there in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so here we see that not only is Israel and the military dismayed and greatly afraid, but Saul is too, right? Saul, Israel's great king, great leader, he himself is dismayed and he is fearful. Actually, this theme of height is a recurring theme in 1 Samuel chapter, or or really in the book of 1 Samuel. So if if you look back in chapter 9, verse 12, we are told that Saul was a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the other people. So this is one of the reasons that Saul was chosen to be king. He was big and strong and tall. He fit the description of a king. He was to be a warrior. Or in chapter 10, verse 23, it reiterates the point. It says that Saul was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So it's obvious from the account that Saul is the most qualified to face Goliath. But he is sinking in dismay and in fear. Now in verses 12 through 30, David arrives on the scene, right? David's three oldest brothers are at the battle already. They are members of the Israelite army. At this point, David himself is not a soldier. He's a runner, right? David's not an official member of the Israelite army, but he's there because he is running an errand for his father. He's carrying some food to his brothers who are preparing for the battle. While David is visiting his brothers, Goliath approaches Israel and issues the same challenge. You see it in verse 24. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Again, you see Israel's response. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And again, we see the fear of Saul, right? So this takes place again in verse 25. Saul offers an award to anyone who would fight the giant. And it's really quite humorous. Saul says there in the text that he will give them great riches, he will give them his daughter in marriage, and their house will be free. 
we assume that means that they would have to pay, they would no longer have to pay taxes. Okay? So pretty good reward, right? Great riches, get to marry the king's daughter, and you never have to pay taxes again. Pretty good deal. Saul essentially says, you can have anything you want, just do something about this man, because I'm surely not going out there to fight him. In verse 26, you see David's response. Look there in verse 26 of chapter 17. We read these words, And David said to the men who stood, behind, uh, stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David is indignant, right? Something must be done. This pagan warrior is mocking God and threatening the lives of God's people. We cannot sit by idly. In verses 31 to 40, David prepares for battle and there's this amazing dialogue that takes place between David and King Saul because there we see in verse 32 that David, the young shepherd, is assuring the great king of Israel. Right Here's this young shepherd boy and he says to the great king of Israel, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Do you notice the heart language in that verse? Saul's heart has failed him. But David's heart is full of courage and assures Saul that God will bring deliverance. Saul responds to David and says, there's no way you can fight this great giant. And then Saul tries to offer some help. He offers David his armor, but it's too big and too clumsy, so David refuses. And then what seems to be a in what seems to be a suicide mission, David takes his sling and five stones from the brook and heads to the battlefield. Verses 41 to 54 record the battle. And notice here is the author records the battle. Notice now who's taking the initiative. In the beginning of the narrative, the Philistines are taking the initiative. So it says that the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and the champion Goliath came out towards the armies of Israel. The Philistines are initiating. They are the aggressors and Israel is fearful and shrinking in fear. But now in verse 40 we read that David approached the Philistine. So David is initiating and in verse 48, when the giant moves towards David, we read that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. So Israel is terrified. Saul is baffled. But David is bold and courageous. And then there's this exchange between Goliath and David. Goliath can't believe what he's seeing, right? You are a youth with a handsome appearance. David's too handsome to be a warrior, right? David is too handsome to be a hardened warrior. He looks like an innocent, inexperienced little schoolboy. And Goliath mocks him and assures David that David's body will be food for the birds that day. David's response is recorded in verses 45 to 47. I just read them for us. Look there again. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the 
all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. This really is the heart, I think, of this text. Sure enough, God does give Goliath into David's hand. David strikes the Philistine with one stone on the forehead, and the force is enough to kill Goliath. The Philistines then scatter in disbelief and fear, and Israel pursues them, pushing them all the way back into Philistine territory. Now this is one of the world's classic narratives and one of the best-known stories in the Bible. But now what I want us to move to is to ask the question, why is it significant? What implications does it have for our lives today? And in considering that question, I want us to consider four applications, okay? So the first is this, the glory of God in David's motivation. The glory of God in David's motivation. Alright? So David clearly here, if you read through this text, you notice that David is clearly moved by one grand motivation, and that is the glory of God. David clearly states the purpose for fighting Goliath in verses 46 and 47, that all the earth may know that there is a God of Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. So there, is two, there are two things that David is eager for everyone to know, right? You see them there in verse 46 and 47. The first is that there is a God in Israel. He wants everyone to know that. In David's day, a battle between two nations was often seen on a grander scale as a battle between the gods of those nations. And therefore, the people who were looking on that day understood this battle to be between the God of the Philistines and the God of Israel. It's evident throughout this account. I mean, it's everywhere. David asked in verse 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What? That he should defy the armies of the living God. He assures Saul in verse 36, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. It's evident as David and Goliath approach each other in battle. In verse 43, uh, we read, And the Philistine cursed David, what? By his gods. So Goliath was calling on the gods of the Philistines to give him victory. David's response is found in verse 45. You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. So on a larger scale, the people who were looking on that day understood this battle, not even so much to be a battle between Goliath and David, but to be a battle between the gods of the Philistines and the God of Israel. David wanted everyone to know that there was a God in Israel. The second thing he wanted everyone to know is that the battle is the Lord's. Look at verse 47. That all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. Now this idea is repeated over and over and over again in the Psalms. One example is Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so this is a prevalent theme throughout the Psalms, but notice that even in this text, after all the dust clears, after David has slayed Goliath, after Goliath is dead and the armies are fleeing, 
the author is emphatic in verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now, are you getting the point that Goliath, this story, is not about Goliath. The story is not even finally about David, but it is most definitely about God. He, in fact, is the God of Israel. He, in fact, is the one who grants success or failure in battle. God is making a name for Himself in these events and through the actions of David. And this is God's intention in all that He does. He intends to make a name for Himself. To bring Himself glory. To reveal His glory. There's so many texts that we could point to. One that I love is Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. This is God speaking and He says, I am the Lord, that is My name. I will not give My glory to another, nor My praise to graven images. This is one of the overarching, grand overarching themes of the Bible. That God's intention to glorify Himself. And we must say, as we are thinking about this idea that David was a man after God's own heart, we must say that a crucial part of what it means to be a man after God's own heart is to be caught up in God's desire to glorify Himself. To see God glorified in my family life. To see God glorified in my work. To see God glorified in my play. To see God glorified in my school. To see God glorified in the salvation of sinners. To see God glorified in the changing of other people's lives. To see God glorified in the good of His church and in the advancement of the gospel to all nations. David didn't go to battle with Goliath because he was trying to prove himself. Or because he was trying to show off. Or because he he was just especially macho and wanted to strut his stuff. David was motivated by a passion for the glory of God. That's why he went to battle with Goliath. Secondly, the glory of God in David's weakness. So the glory of God in David's motivation, which was to glorify God, and then the glory of God in David's weakness. Now this also is a prevalent theme in the life of David. If you just go back a few chapters in 1 Samuel, when David was chosen to be king, he was the most unlikely of candidates. In fact, his father, Jesse, thought he was the least qualified of all his brothers. And this theme is repeated in our account here to David and Goliath. Notice that when David says he will fight the giant, David's oldest brother responds in verse 28 by saying, with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He's mocking him, right? David is a shepherd. David's not a warrior. Essentially, his brother is saying, you need to mind your own business. And how does Saul respond when David says he will approach Goliath in battle? Look at verse 33 and we read, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul is saying, you're too young, you're too inexperienced, you're not up for this. And then Goliath, Goliath taunts David, right? He says in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. So in the eyes of David's eldest brother, in the eyes of Saul, the king of Israel, and in the eyes of Goliath the giant, David is weak and he is unsuited for the task. For crying out loud, David can't even put on armor for battle. How is he going to fight this giant? This is the man that God uses to slay the giant. What we see here is that God delights to use the weak because when he uses the weak, it all the more magnifies his glory and power and strength. You know, if I were going to cut down a tree and I wanted to impress you with my great strength and persuade you of how strong I am, I could cut down that tree with a dull axe or a really strong axe or a really sharp axe. But if I cut it down with a dull axe, you would be all the more impressed with my strength and persuaded of how strong I really was. Now, I'm not that strong, so I would opt for a chainsaw. But you get the point, right? When God uses us, dull axes though we may be, it glorifies and magnifies and displays further His great strength and power. Listen, in considering others, and, and, and I think we should make this point, in considering others for a particular gifting or a particular calling or a particular position, it's not that God does not... It's, it's not that God says you shouldn't consider or make judgment on people's qualifications or giftedness. It's not that we shouldn't give any consideration to one's ability or giftedness, but it surely should not be the only consideration. God looks at the heart, right? He is supremely concerned with one's heart and with one's character before Him, and He is often pleased to use the one that we would not naturally consider to be the first choice. Friends, don't underestimate what God may do with your life if you humbly submit yourself to His will. Let me take this before we move on to our next point, just in a little bit of a different direction, because I think this principle applies to salvation as well. I know that it does. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you've thought that being a Christian and going to church is all about dressing up and looking nice and coming here and showing everyone how qualified you are and how justified you are to be here, to be a Christian, to be respected and honored in the eyes of others. My friends, that's not true at all. It's not true at all. You know, several people have commented to me, and I was even talking to someone this last week who shared this with me. Several people have shared with me that they like the fact that here at Berea, when we sing songs, we don't just sing happy songs, you know. But we sing songs that speak about our own brokenness and hurt and our own sin. Isn't that odd? Like we get up early on Sunday mornings and gather together to sing about our sin, right? We regularly sing about the fact that we are sinners. And that may seem strange, but why do we do that? Because we are. Because we are so weak and messed up. Because we are sinners and we need a Savior. And one of the reasons we gather is to remind ourselves of our brokenness and to celebrate our Savior. Listen, my friends, if you are messed up, if you are broken, 
If you are a sinner, then you are just the kind of person that God delights to save and to change and to use for His glory. God glorifies Himself in our weakness. The third point I want us to see here, the glory of God. First of all, the glory of God in David's motivation. Secondly, the glory of God in David's weakness. Third, the glory of God in David's faith. Do you notice that in the narrative, God, the God of Israel, is not mentioned until verse 26? The giant has come out against Israel. He's taunted their armies for 40 days. This has gone on. And not once does the text mention God. We're told that Israel and Saul are dismayed and they're greatly afraid. We're told that David's brothers are frozen and have no intentions of taking action. But in verse 27, David offers an entirely new factor into the equation. Verse 26, I may have said 27, I meant 26. David says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? In other words, David is saying, God should be considered. God should be considered in this situation. And then in verse 46, we witness the bold faith of David. He says, I will strike you down. I will remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. And upon what ground does David make these statements? Well, David's confidence, David's faith springs from his consideration of God. His consideration of who God is and what God has done in the past. Do you see it in verse 36 and 37? He's speaking to Saul and he says, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So David says, looking at who God is, looking at how He has acted in the past, I have faith and confidence that He will act again on our behalf. And notice that David's faith in God empowered him to take real risk for the glory of God. And God wants us to be a people who will take risk for His glory. And listen, make no mistake, this was a real risk, right? I mean, notice what Goliath says to him in verse 44. Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. What an invitation. How would you like to get that evite in your email with that on it? Come to me, Saturday night, 6 o'clock, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. You know what the text says? David picked up his sling and a few stones and he ran to the battle. David's consideration of God and David's desire to see God glorified birthed in him a faith that propelled him to take risk for the glory of God. And may God grant us such faith. May we not be weenies for the kingdom. Right? But may we be full of courage and boldness 
take ground for the glory of God. That God grant us such faith. And, and listen, we need faith like this in small things. Men, you might be fearful and resisting initiating family devotions because you're scared that if you do so, you'll fumble around and just look foolish in front of your family. You may be resisting reaching out to guests after the service, introducing yourself, showing them love, or inviting your neighbor over for dinner because you're fearful of rejection. Some of us may need to take a bigger step out and take a risk for the gospel. Perhaps you're fearful of faithfully giving to supporting gospel ministry, even though you know God wants you to invest in eternity. Perhaps you're scared to pray for unreached people groups, people who have never heard the name of Christ or had access to the gospel because you're afraid that if you pray for them, God might call you overseas. And you may be resisting the possibility of going on a short-term mission trip because you're afraid it will be too hard or too difficult. All my friends, conquer that faith, that fear with faith. As a church, if we are to continue to be a help to people, if we are continue to see the gospel advanced through us, then let me tell you, there will be some risk involved. There will be. There will be battles. But let us take wise, gospel-motivated risk for the good of others and for the glory of God. God calls us to such faith. Now, finally, I want us to see We've seen the glory of God in David's motivation, in his weakness, in his faith. And then finally, I want us to see the glory of God in Christ. The glory of God in Christ. So David is a type of Christ. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. This is very clear from Old Testament and New Testament scriptures that David is a type of Christ. God made a promise in the Old Testament that a son from David's line would sit on David's throne and rule forever. Okay, so that was a promise that God made to David. You will have a son, and that son will sit on your throne, and he will rule forever. And when you come to the New Testament, and you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are gospel accounts that tell the life and story of Jesus. They stress over and over and over again that Jesus was a descendant of David. That he, in fact, is the promised king. David, the shepherd king, points us to Jesus, the good shepherd. In the eyes of the world, David was weak and he was unassuming. No one thought, how can he kill this giant? How is he going to be the great king of Israel? And in the same way, no one would have thought Jesus, the son of a carpenter from the little town of Nazareth, would be a king. But he was. And he will rule and reign with compassion and tenderness like a shepherd cares for his sheep. David, the warrior king, also points us to Jesus, the great warrior king. David was a man of battle and a man of war. You remember that of Saul, it was said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. We read in the New Testament that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does that mean? Well, it means he's on top of the food chain, okay? Lions are on top of the food chain. You don't want to mess with a lion. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
You know, in the account of David and Goliath, we probably most often place ourselves in the role of David. Have you ever done that? You visualize it maybe in your mind. You know, you're marching onto the battlefield. You're charging towards the ferocious giant with the crowd looking on and your hair's blowing in the wind. Everybody, the crowd, and everybody's looking and anticipating your every move. And then in a moment of unusual courage and skill, you fling one stone, and in the act of faith, you slay the giant. The crowd cheers and goes crazy, and then you humbly give glory to God. Now listen, it's not all bad to put yourself in the place of David. We should seek to emulate David's passion for God's glory and his risk-taking faith for the sake of the gospel. But if truth be told, I'm not David in this story. David is a picture of Jesus. Jesus rescuing the people of God from their enemies. Jesus, the great warrior king. You see, in this story, I'm not so much David as I am the people who are standing on the mountain right behind David, fearful and dismayed, staring at the enemies of my soul. My distrust in God. My failure to love God and others as I should. My shameful inconsistency to do what is right. And the sentence of death and judgment that looms over my guilty soul. And I am afraid. I don't stand a chance against the enemies of my soul. Of sin and of death and of judgment. And then Jesus emerges. And he says, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight. And he takes the battlefield. And you think David is weak? You think David's method of battle is unconventional? Jesus takes the battlefield not to kill, but to be killed. And in his death, He once and for all slays the giant of sin and death and judgment. And we hear it in the words of celebration from the Apostle Paul, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The battlefield took place at Calvary, and Jesus won the battle. And where are we in the story? Are we on the battlefield? No, we're on the mountain, right? We're in the stands and we are celebrating. We are cheering. He's won the battle. He's won the battle. You know, I've memorized a passage recently from Psalm 26. It says, I know that the Lord will save His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And who is the Lord's anointed in that text? Who is it that God will hear? Who is it that the Lord will hear from His holy mountain and rescue Him? When that text, Psalm 20, is written by David, it's David. David was the anointed one. David was set apart when Samuel anointed him with oil as the king of Israel. He was set apart to be the great king of Israel. But in an ultimate sense... Jesus is the Lord's anointing. 
This is what it means to be the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. When we say Jesus is the Messiah, we're saying He's the anointed one. He's the promised one. He's the one that's been set apart by God to rule and deliver His people. And so does Psalm 26 apply to me? Well, yes, as a Christian, I've been given the Spirit of God, and I'm a child of God, and I've been set apart for Him, and so God will help me, and I can trust in Him. But more directly, that passage applies to Jesus. The Lord will save his anointed one, his chosen one, his Messiah. And he did. When he died, when he went to the grave, God did not forsake him, but he raised him from the dead. And in that is our hope. You see, my hope is not so much that he's on my team and I'm running out on the battlefield to win the day, but my hope is that I'm on his team and that He's won the battle. Listen, my friends, if you get that, if you get that Jesus is the warrior king who has won the battle for you, then you will be motivated to bring Him glory. You will be motivated to make much of Him. And you will be filled with faith that makes you bold to take risks for the glory of God. So let us learn from David. But let us remember that David only points us to another. A greater, ultimate, final warrior king who wins the battle and saves our souls. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for David and for his example of faith. And we pray, Lord, that like David, we would be men and women after your own heart, filled with a passion for your glory that motivates us and gives us faith to take risk for your great name's sake. And then, Father, we pray that as we consider the life and the example of David, that we would rejoice and we would glory in the fact that Jesus has won the ultimate battle for us. David could not finally save us Jesus went to Calvary and rose again so that he might finally win the battle against sin and death and judgment and secure for us an eternal victory that cannot be taken away. Lord, we pray that as we come to your table now that we would rejoice in that victory. That we would take great hope and great delight in the fact that Jesus has gone before us and by his broken body and by his shed blood the victory has been won. It's in His name we pray. Amen.